Okay, what, yes, we are on part eight, not chapter eight. Um, and so just as a little bit of review, we're going over um, Right, so we're in the chapter or the section of justification, right, which is the imputation of righteousness, but Paul first has to express or teach or relay the message that, that you're under condemnation. Basically, no matter who you are, you're under condemnation. And so we were just been going over that, how the guilt of the Gentiles, and then within the Gentiles are sort of two groups, the pagans or the, the um, unlearned, uneducated ones, they would call it, the barbarians, and then the educated ones, they would call the Gentiles. And so um, Paul made the claim that while they're not under the Mosaic law, they're still under general revelation, right? Remember, they could look up, they could see the stars, they could see the sun, they could see that there is a creator. Without a doubt, there is a creator, and you should see with it, and then moreover, you have a conscience, right? Your conscience God's law, not the Mosaic law, but God's principle of living is inside of you, no matter who you are, no matter where you are, no matter what tribe or culture you come from, you are responsible for your response to general revelation, right? General revelation being the creation. And we looked at when, when you respond positively to general revelation, God will reward you. He'll, you know, he rewards those who diligently seek him with the gospel and somehow it will get to you. So the Gentiles are guilty, regardless of with the Mosaic law or not, the Gentiles are guilty. And then we moved on um, to chapter 2, which is that the Jews are not going to escape condemnation just because they're Jews, right? And so that's kind of where we're at. Um, so we are right at, we'll just start, we did a little bit last week, the guilt of the Jews, 2.17 to 3.8. Okay, so they, Paul now shifts gears from pagan, old man, he's now going to uh, deal with the Jews, um, and their danger or their peril or their responsibility and accountability is because they had certain privileges, remember? Um, but those privileges come with specific responsibilities. Um, too much is given, much is expected, right? Um, so while the Gentiles did not have these privileges, they weren't responsible to act upon those privileges, but the Gentiles are still responsible to act upon their own internal faith. But the Jews have something different. Um, so let's look at um, verse 2-1. Um, I'm sorry, not 2-1, 17. Read verse 17, if you would, of chapter 2. Now you, if you call yourself a Jew, you rely on the law and brag about your relationship to God. Yes, you, bro you rely on the law and boast in God, right? So he shifts gears from calling it O man of chapter 2-1. He now, in verse 17, he shifts gears to say now it's to you Jew, basically, right? Because these Jews were relying upon the Mosaic law. What do you think they were relying on the Mosaic law to give them? Like good, good, yeah, good measure with God, right? Some sort of righteousness, right? God gave the Mosaic law, so they boast upon this idea that God gives them the law. Therefore, they have a special righteousness or special um, access or special something to God because God gave it to them. So they had boasted 
to the Gentile world that they had received more revelation of God's direct will than any other people group. And that's true, right? Because they alone knew and worshipped the one true God. The pagans were, we, we talk about the whole cascade of problems, right? You, you have a vacuum in your heart. You need to worship God. But if you refuse to worship God, the first essence or the first uh, expression of it is idolatry. And then idolatry of created things versus the creator. And then it moves into sexual immorality. Sexual immorality is homosexuality. And homosexuality leads you to a debased mind, right? And all these, these uh, crazy ideas which we see in our culture. And God eventually just says, okay, now you live in the results of your debased mind, right? But the Jews boasted in the fact that they knew and worshipped the one true God. Um, and so read verse 18. know his will and approve of what is superior because you are instructed by the law. Right, so they knew. So they knew what is excellent. They knew what uh, the law tells them. Um, so this is the law. So this is um, a definite article. So it is the Mosaic law. They knew God's will. God's will was written to them and taught to them. So they had the superior things, right? The, and then the people the Jewish people approved of that position and approved of that understanding, but none of that makes them righteous before God, right? None of that knowledge, remember we talked about being a doer of the word rather than a hearer of the word, right? So that knowledge, that position does not make them righteous and give them salvation, um, even though they had privileges um, and they knew God's will and of these superior things, meaning who God is, they couldn't claim superiority just because they possessed it, right? So then he lists here in verses 19 and 20, he's going to list these claims that they think they have. Well, I should say they have, but they claim it, but they claim it without actually doing it. So read 19 and 20, if you would, please. Okay, so these, Paul lists five claims, right? They, the first claim is that the Jews become guides to the blind, right? They thought they were to be a light to those in darkness. Um, and that's, the, that's a reference to the Gentile world in Isaiah 9-2. So they also felt they had the right to, to and, and obligation to correct the foolish things of the world, right? Uh, we know that in Psalm 14, um, if, the, the fool says in his heart, there is no God, right? A foolish person is someone who claims there is no God. And so the Jews had this superiority claim that they knew the one true God and it was them who was to correct them. The Jews thought they were te a teacher to the children. Um, and that's a reference to the, you know, becoming a believer in Judaism or a proselyte in Judaism. You are, like Paul would call you, like a, you know, of the milk, right? Drinking of the milk. And so that's kind of what that is referring to. Um, and they, are, they base these claims on the fact that they possessed the Mosaic Law, which was the embodiment of God's word to the world, right? Of knowledge and truth. But what did we learn in the Gospels that one of Christ's major, um, um, uh, what do you say? One of Christ's major rebuttals against Judaism at that time was that Pharisaic Judaism had 
grossly misinterpreted scripture, right? They had grossly misinterpreted it or re and, and reinterpreted it really um, that it didn't carry its intended teachings, right? It didn't carry its things. So he does a whole thing on the Sermon on the Mount. You've heard this, well, I tell you it's this, right? They tell you this, well, I tell you that, right? And so they really had taken the things of God, the, the superior claims, and they reinterpreted it and misinterpreted it to the point where Christ had to come and rebut all their things, right? So far, so good? Okay, so verses 21 through 24 um, basically continue on with the fact that they didn't use their privileges properly. Um, and so now he's going to, he listed five claims, now he's going to list five questions, um, and then they're going to be obviously sort of an answer of yes, right, or no. Um, they're, they're going to be positively that, you know, they are without a doubt true. Um, so he shows that the Jews had failed to understand their responsibility, their privileges, and therefore they didn't act accordingly. So just like the Gentiles, they too fall short of the righteousness of God, even though they had these privileges. So it's five questions are next. The first two questions are in verse 21. So someone read verse 21. Right, so the Jewish leaders taught others but failed to teach themselves, basically, right? Um, so there, this is from stealing, thou shalt not steal, right? That's a basic Ten Commandments. So they taught and did specific restrictions on the Mosaic Law about uh, stealing. Um, so they taught and, and preached that a man should not steal, a Jew should not steal, yet they became guilty of stealing themselves. It's not saying here that all Jews were thieves, right? But the leadership or certain men, men among them were thieves themselves, even though they were teaching others to not steal, right? Um, so some were breaking the law as well. And then verse uh, 22 is the next two questions. You who say that people should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? Right, so obviously they taught not to commit adultery, one of the, another one of the Ten Commandments, and then they would go ahead and commit the sins themselves, right? It's not saying again that all Jews were committing adultery, but it was a part of their culture to where God could say, no, you teach these things, but you aren't doing them yourselves, right? Um, but like we said, just as Christ taught that, that lusting after a person that you're not married to is adultery, right? And he had to re, he had to realign what the law, the spirit of the law really meant because the Pharisees were, had the written law and they, de they would then define what adultery was to them, right? But Christ had to come and say, no, as, as easy as just a, um, lusting after another person who's not your spouse is adultery. So he had to reinterpret that or re remind them of what it really meant. Um, then moreover, um, about robbing temples. And so in the first century, um, Jews hated idols, right? They knew that idolship, idol worship, worship was one of the ways of a debased culture. Um, and so they would rob these pagan temples. And the premise was that the, the pagans um, made these temples, these pagan temples, 
um, and they regarded them as, as um, like sacred places, right? So much so that they became banks. Like people would come and store their money there at these temples because everybody sort of agreed that they were sacred and if you were to mess with the temple, then you, something bad would happen to you basically. Well, the Jews, some Jews, um, would go and rob from the temples and their premise was, well, if you're worshiping an idol God and we steal from the temple, us stealing from the temple shows that your idol isn't good or isn't real or doesn't exist, right? So that's kind of what they were, they were thinking that if they were successful, it would show that this pagan temple or pagan God uh, was worthless in protecting their property. So that's what Paul is alluding to in verse 22. Then the fifth and last question is in verse 23. He, he accuses his fellow Jews of hypocrisy. So read verse 23. <laughs> right. So they were very proud, and like we read, they were boastful that God had given them the Mosaic Law. Um, but they are dishonoring God because they break the law. So they have possession of the law, yet they break the law. And again, I'm not to say that any one of us would be better at law-abiding Jewish people, right? But this is Paul's case against them of why they are not righteous under God, right? They're under condemnation just like the pagans. Even though they thought they were better and superior, they didn't do anything better. Um, and then verse 24 shows the result of that. So read that if you would. So because of their hypocrisy, the Jewish hypocrisy, the Gentiles began blaspheming the name of God, the God of Israel. They would blaspheme the name of God of Israel. This was prophesied actually in Isaiah 52, 5. So I'll read Isaiah 52, 5. It says, Now therefore what have I here, declares the Lord, seeing that my people are taken away for nothing, their rulers wail, declares the Lord, and continually all the day my name is despised. So God holds his name in very high regard, right? And the, 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 one of the purposes of Israel or the Jews was to proclaim the name of God with honor, right? And they didn't. And now God is basically saying through Isaiah, my name is despised continually all day long among the Gentiles. So, so Paul is accusing them or, or laying a verdict on them that it, they are not at all worthy of boasting because of what they've been doing. Um, okay, so again, an, a big part of Jewishness is circumcision, right? And so Paul, Paul now will go into um, outward Judaism and inward Judaism because a Jew was known by being outwardly circumcised but we're going to see that inward circumcision is what God is really after, and what God really, really means by circumcision. Um, so let's look at verses 25 through 29 next. If somebody would read 25, it's a, basically a clarification regarding circumcision. So read 25 if you would. Circumcision has value if you observe the law, but if you break the law, you have become as though you had not been circumcised. Right, so circumcision was the outward mark of being under the Abrahamic covenant, right? Or being under 
God's covenant with Israel. If you wanted to be an Israelite or a Jew, you would become circumcised. So Paul is saying it is indeed a value because it's a way of recognizing with God's program. Um, it, was, it, it was a sign of a covenant, right? But circumcision alone, we obviously can think circumcision alone does you no good, right? It doesn't actually provide you with any kind of salvation or justification or blessings, really. Um, the blessings of the Mosaic law were always dependent upon continual obedience of that law, right? After circumcision, all circumcision does was just say, okay, now you've entered into this contract per se, do these things, right? So Paul's saying, if you got circumcised, but then you transgressed the law, it's like you were never circumcised anyways, right? Didn't make any difference. Um, and it's the same, it's the same that we might say in marriage, right? You might give your vows to your, your spouse, but if you break the vows, it's as though you're living as though you, the vows didn't mean anything to you anyways, right? Okay, so here we're going to get, Paul's going to ask several questions again. So read verse 26 and 27. This is regarding circumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have written the code and circumcision but break the law. Okay, so basically Paul's saying every person, man and woman, is actually circumcised, meaning that... Uh, you, you enter into this covenantal relationship with the Lord. Um, and Paul, so Paul makes the case. He says, even, even if a Gentile was not uncircumcised, but he kept the law, right? He's better than the one who, <coughs> excuse me, who was circumcised and didn't keep the law, right? Because it's reckoned to him as circumcision, even though he didn't have the outward act, the inward act is what mattered to God, right? Um, so he was showed that he was spiritually circumcised on the inside rather than outside a Jew who didn't keep the law, right? Um, so Paul's even saying that that person, even though he's uncircumcised, kept the law, he's now a judge against the circumcised one. I know I'm kind of throwing all these twists here, but it is there, we get it. Um, so the Jews trust, this is a, a theologian commenting, his name is Whitmer, the Jews trusted not only in the law of Moses, but also in circumcision as the sign of their special covenantal relationship with God. But Paul argued that trust in the right itself, or the act of circumcision, was meaningless and was a basis for God's judgment. So it even condemns them even more if they are believing that circumcision does anything valuable to them without actually doing the law, right? without actually doing anything. Um, okay, so let's see. So without spiritual circumcision, no one is able to keep the Mosaic law, right? Even the spiritually circumcised person would never have been able to keep the law perfectly, right? We talked about how um, a couple verses back, a little, a little confusing passage where it says that if someone basically keeps the law perfectly, they'll have eternal life, right? And it's a rhetorical question because, or a hypothetical question because nobody can keep the law perfectly, right? But that was the purpose of the law, was to say, this is God's righteousness. If you can do this perfectly, you will have eternal life. The reality is nobody can keep the law perfectly, and so you need a Savior to do it for you, right? 
All right, so only the Messiah <coughs> could keep the law perfectly. And so the whole point of salvation is that we trust in his work, right? It isn't that works weren't done. His work was done. He did the work of keeping the law perfectly, and he's just imputed it to us because we have faith in him, right? The grace was given to us um, through faith. Um, okay. Let's see. So basically, again, it would be obviously it wouldn't be right to think that any kind of outward rite of passage like circumcision could lead to salvation, even if you kept the law, right? You can't keep the law 100% and lead to salvation. But circumcision without faith has and never will accomplish anything. Um, but uncircumcision won't keep you from the messianic kingdom. It won't keep you from salvation. Um, because if your faith is in Christ, circumcision is irrelevant. It's basically what it's saying. Because both those who are and those who are not are saved by grace through faith. Um, yeah? Um, let's see. So jump over to Jeremiah 4 4. So all in the New Testament, I'm sorry, in the Old Testament, they knew this, right? The, the, the Jews knew that circumcision wasn't the means of salvation or the means of righteousness with God because even Jeremiah tells them what real circumcision really is. So read Jeremiah 4.4. 4. Circumcise yourselves to the Lord. Remove the portion from your flesh. Men of Judah and Benjamin and Jerusalem. Otherwise, my wrath will break out like fire and burn with no one who is Right, so he's teaching here that circumcision without faith is basically uncircumcision, right? And Paul's just reiterating that. Um, but he's just saying on the other side, uncircumcision with faith is valuable, is circumcision. Those who are circumcised without faith are no value, but those who are uncircumcised with faith are of value. So Judah, uh, Jeremiah is saying one aspect, and Paul is saying the other aspect, but this is, this is the same coin. Okay, back to Romans. 28 and 29a, um, it kind of concludes here the danger or the peril of the Jew. So read 28 and 29, if you would. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. For the Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart. By the spirit, not by, by the, the letter. Spirit, yep. not by the letter. Okay. So we see there's no distinction here, right? They don't distinguish between Jews and Gentiles, nor do they teach that Gentile believers become some kind of spiritual Jews, right? So this whole section, we have to kind of understand this whole context here of this entire section, beginning with verse 17, it deals with Jews. Um, so contrary to rabbinic theology, Neither physical circumcision nor physical birth as Jew brings salvation. So um, that was a big deal, right? If we recall when we were going through the, 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 uh, the life of the Messiah, the Gospels, that the, the Mishnah taught that just by being a Jew, being born to Jewish family, uh, gave you an, a passageway to heaven, right? A passageway to Abraham's bosom, they call it, right? Um, 
And Paul is saying that's not true at all. That's, con you know, that's contrary to what Scripture says. Um, circumcision nor physical birth does anything for your salvation. All it does is identify you into a, a basically this covenant with God. So it's basically contrasting Jews who believe and Jews who don't believe. So outward Jewishness, right, is showed by circumcision, um, but it's not sufficient for salvation. But there has to be an inner Jewishness, right, the Jewishness meaning a covenantal contract with the one true God. That's an inner circumcision, circumcision of the heart, as Jeremiah called it. Um, so a spiritual Jew is a Jew both outwardly and inwardly, right? Outwardly, he deals with the issues of the flesh, right? He, meaning he's following the letter of the law um, and the mind, but inner, inwardly, he's dealing with the issues of the heart, the spirit, and of God, right? God is spirit, we worship him in spirit. So outwardly, it's a circumcision of the flesh. Inwardly, it's a circumcision of the heart, right? Are we good? All right, so... So this little section ends in 29b. It says, whose, pay, whose praise is not of men, but of God. Um, remember, Jew, the, the term Jew comes from a Hebrew word that means praise, right? To praise. It's a verb, to praise. So basically, Paul is saying, who is a Jew? One whose praise or whose identification, his Jewishness, is not of men, but of God, right? Pharisaic, Pharisaical Judaism was purely outward Judaism, the, the, you know, and, and Christ um, rejected all of them. They would, do, they would pray openly, and they would walk solemnly, and they would have the faces of being fasting, and all these outward expressions. Um, it's an, that's from men. But Judaism that saves inwardly is Judaism that is of God. That's what Paul is saying. Um, but again, this is, this is not contrasting between Gentile believers and Jewish unbelievers. It's dealing with Jews who are believers and Jews who are unbelievers, right? That's the context of the Jews in this, this section here. Um, so to be a complete Jew, a full Jew, you need both types of circumcision. Outward, in obedience to Abrahamic covenant, to identify that, and then inward circumcision of the heart as an act of obedience to the new covenant, right? God's law is written on your heart. You're, you're not in need of consistent sacrifices and worship and, and these altars and things of the Mosaic law, you have faith and trust in the Messiah to bring you salvation. Paul's not teaching here that, that Gentiles can become spiritual Jews, though, right? We, we really want to delineate clearly that God has two people groups, Jews and Gentiles. And while Jews and Gentiles now will make up the church, um, meaning that there is no difference in who becomes part of a church. <clears throat> there is a people group that God the Father called out among for himself, and that is the Jews. Um, we, are not, we are not spiritual Jews, right? Um, so Jews have had greater revelation, right? That greater revelation, meaning revealing of God himself, right? God has revealed himself to the Jews, um, but it comes with a greater responsibility. That's the Mosaic law. His failure to keep the law shows that he doesn't live up to the righteous standards of God, even though he has all that information, right? Even though he has that revelation. So just like the Gentiles, the Jewish unbeliever also falls short of God's righteous standards 
and is therefore under God's divine judgment. So the pagans who are unbelievers are under God's judgment, and the Jews who are unbelievers are under God's judgment, basically, right? And the Jews who are believers in the Messiah are not under God's judgment, and the Gentiles who are believers in the Messiah are not under judgment. So Paul just sort of touches this briefly in this section. In chapters 9 through 11, he's going to go significantly more in depth about this um, and more in detail about this distinction and about this, this, these differences and what it means to be a Jew and have God, has God forgotten about them. But he, all, he would be remiss to, to leave it at that, that the Jews are condemnation. So he, he now moves into the next section, which is the, the promise to the Jew. Um, so he talks about how the Jews are not forgotten already in chapter uh, 2, verse 17. Um, now he's going to deal with a promise to the Jewish people. So the Jewish people are not better off because they're Jews than the Gentiles. They too are guilty and under the judgment of God, right? The wrath of God. Um, and they had many experiences with God. The prophets were there teaching them, proclaiming God's word, thus the Lord has said, right? And all these things. So they had more experiences with the one true God, yet even in their even in their privileged position, they despised God, right? They did not give glory. Um, and they rebelled against him, just as the sin of the Gentiles were um, held accountable to. So now he's going to discuss the promise to the Jewish people. Because there's going to be, the Jews think, again, think very highly of themselves. So Paul here is going to anticipate objections that the Jews would be saying to him. Um, and so he's going to answer a series of sort of possible questions that would arise because of this, this uh, objections that they would give him. So I'll just quickly summarize the questions and we'll go, we'll go into them. So basically saying, are all the distinctions between Jews and Gentiles obsolete? Have they been erased? Um, the ordinary Jew is the same level as the ordinary Gentile. If you're an unbeliever, you're under God's wrath, right? So what then is left of the privileges of God to the Jews, right? That's a question. And many, 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 unfortunately, uh, Christian teachers say that the Jews don't have that privilege anymore. They don't have that special uh, covenant relationship with God anymore. Um, and so Paul is actually going to answer that question, and theologians today still think that way, and they still call it, and I, I don't know, I guess they don't read Romans, um, but, but here it is. So just read verse 1, if you would, of chapter 3. What advantage, then, is there in being a Jew, or what value is there in circumcision? Right, so now, remember, Paul is writing after the rejection, Right of their Messiah, the the seventy year uh, the seventy A.D. Uh, destruction of the temple has not occurred yet, but he's writing after Israel has already rejected their Messiah on a national basis. Um, so he's basically saying what what happened to Israel's promises that God gave them now that they rejected their Messiah? What about them? Right, since both Jews and Gentiles are likewise under God's judgment and wrath. Is there any, any advantage to being a Jew, right? 
And he answers them as resounding, yes, there is a, an advantage to being a Jew. There's significant advantage. And the chief advantages, advantage is in verse 2. So read verse 2. Okay, so right there, right? That's one of them all. First of all, right, much in every way, much in every way, Paul is saying that they are, in fact, still very special to God, right? They were entrusted with the oracles of God. God chose the Jews as the people to whom he would reveal himself to the world, right? We are all studying God's word because of Jews. Every book of the Bible was written by a Jew, right? Um, so he, he gave them to the Jews. He entrusted them to maintain it. He entrusted them to, to keep it accurate, keep it uh, correct, and not corrupt it at all. Um, so both to oracly or speak it and also to write it down. They received divine revelation, divine, divine understanding, divine inspiration, divine illumination, right? And then they would record it. Um, they preserve the written text, right? We wouldn't, like I said, we wouldn't have what we have in front of us without them. Um, they would have schools of scribes who would meticulously copy the, the original transcript. So when one, you know, and a scribe is what they'd read in the synagogue every Saturday or every day or whatever way they would do it. And so when that one got messed up, there was already one at the ready to be replaced for that one. So they were, that was, it was a school that they had to go, so they took it very seriously. So God, God preserved, charged them to preserve his word that way, right? So we're, what type of attitude should we have to that? We should be thankful, right? We should be grateful that they have done that, that God charged them with them, and they have done that, right? All believers all over the place have the scriptures today because of that. And the, the oracles of God contain promises to the Jews that have not yet been fulfilled, right? The new covenant has not been fulfilled. The Abrahamic covenant has not been fulfilled. The Davidic covenant has not been fulfilled. But it will be. The messianic kingdom will be the fulfillment of those promises and those covenants. So there's still distinctions um, between Jews and Gentiles. Um, but as far as salvation is concerned, there's no distinction, right? There's no distinction. But there is a distinction of position um, in God's plan, right? We are part of Christ's church, right? They are part of God's covenant, right? Covenant, they, you know, the Old Testament calls him the, the wife of Jehovah is Israel, right? And we're the bride of Christ as well. So verse 3 is another couple of questions. Read verse 3 if you would. Right, so we can sort of see where he's going here, right? But notice that word there. It says, what if some were unfaithful? Because even though national Israel rejected their Messiah, not all of them rejected their Messiah, right? So some of them were unfaithful. Just because some of them were unfaithful doesn't mean that it nullifies the faithfulness of God. In fact, our unfaithfulness proves God's faithfulness over and over and over again, right? And, and that's, you know, Martin Luther had some 
very has written some excellent things, and he, you know, he, in his ninety-five thesis against the Roman Catholic Church. But he also wrote some terrible, terrifying things about Jews, right? And even Hitler used some of Martin Luther's writing to justify their treatment of the Jews because of their rejection of the Messiah, right? And so you can get all convoluted in this theology that the Jews relinquished their covenant and their blessings to God, and it's the church who took it from them or receives them. And the Holocaust was one such uh, you know, example of that. Um, so, and that we would call that replacement theology. Basically, the church has replaced Israel as receiving the spiritual blessings. And remember, like we talked last week, well, we can't be upset if, if, if you know, we want the spiritual blessings, but we also get the curses too, right? God gave curses. If you do this or if you don't do this, you're going to get these things. Well, we as the church, you know, with this belief that of replacement theology, we can't want just the blessings and disregard the curses, right? Um, but that term is very important, right? There's some is, is a key word there because some were unfaithful, right? And they did reject the Messiah. But, not, but only some, not all, and as a re, not as a result of that, it, was, it would be actually irrelevant if all of them were unfaithful because God's faithfulness is not dependent upon their faithfulness, right? Their unfaithfulness. So while some are without faith, not all of them. Um, and so even verse 4, it clearly says the interpretation of replacement theology is an impossibility under God's promises. So read verse 4, if you would. By no means let God be true, though everyone were a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail in your judgment. Right, so he's answering the question, does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Um, so this expression is, is one of the strongest expressions used. It doesn't sound as strong to us because of our culture, but um, that could be used in the Greek language, this by no means. It basically means something like, may, may such a thought never enter your mind, right? That God is unfaithful or God will be faithless to the Jews because of their unfaithfulness. May that thought never enter your mind is what Paul is saying. The unfaithfulness of Israel would even, like I said, even prove to be greater faithfulness by God because he's going to continue to bless them even though they were unfaithful to him, right? So it just shows forth his true character and his faithfulness. Um, so although Israel has failed in her faithfulness to God, he will not be unfaithful to her. And when it comes, he will show forth that faithfulness. Um, and today, the fact that Israel even exists um, is a huge aspect of God's faithfulness and promises to them, right? That's an, that's an absolute attribute that we know that God is still working through the nation of Israel. And it's, he will be found true because of his word. The word that he gave them, the word that he promised them, he will be found true because he promised them based upon his own faithfulness, not upon their faithfulness, right? And so Paul is basically, basically saying, let every... Let God be true, though everyone were a liar, right? All right, so any, any theologian, any pastor, any teacher, anyone who teaches that God is through with the Jewish people is a liar, is what Paul's saying. You are a liar if you think that God's faithfulness to Israel has ended or been replaced. You're lying, right? Yes, sir? Is he more faithful 
to, to the Jews than he is to the Gentiles at this point because it's all, it's all based off things of Jesus. I'd, I'd say that not more so, but we don't, as the church, we can't claim the promises of Israel. Right, so the promises that God gave Israel, He will fulfill. But we can't claim like there's a famous passage that we often use. It's if my people would humble them and pray, I will come and heal their land. Right, Second Chronicles, I think. And not to say that's not a valuable principle, because it is a valuable principle. But we can't apply that to our United States. Right, we we can't say that we have a co contract. The United States does not have a covenantal contract with God. Right, Israel does. So we can't plead as a people and say, God, uh, remember your faith, remember your covenant, remember your contract with us, because we don't have that. We built a system, I say we, the founding fathers built a system based upon Judeo principles and values that would produce good things, right? And it has for several hundred or a couple hundred years. But we can't take that, we can't demand a fulfillment of God's contract with us, right? I don't right. want to say demand me not the word, but it can be used because a contract is a contract, right? And so I, to answer your question, I would say that God's faithfulness is to, to his word, and what he said, and he gave his word to Israel, not to any other people group. So as the church, we know that Christ said, I will build my church, right? I will equip the saints. The church is built upon the foundation of the apostles, Christ being the chief cornerstone. So it's not the church's responsibility to say, change the world, right? It's not the church's responsibility to make the United States or to make the church ready for Christ to come back to receive his bride. He says he will do that. So it's not our job to change the politics, to change the environment. To, now we are light and salt and we can be used to be a light and salt, but it's not our duty or our calling as a church to change um, the, into a theocratic government like Israel was, because we're not Israel, right? So we're just there to, uh, in the marketplace of ideas, discuss why Christianity is superior, why there's only one true God, why faith and salvation, in, or faith and, and trust in Jesus Christ is the only way to salvation. That's basically what our, our goal is, but we can't, we can't expect the promises given to Israel to be given to us. But we can learn some principles. But the new covenant trumped the old covenant because now, even with the old covenant, it's not going to get you anywhere, right? Unless you have faith in Jesus, right? And he will even, and we talk, even the old covenant was based upon faith too. The Mosaic law was based upon faith. When you did the sacrifices and you did the offerings, you believed by faith that God would honor those things, right? And then you had to do it again. The following year, you had the same thing again, right? And so you believed by faith that it meant something to God. It meant that it would be attributed to righteousness to you, but it just says it would just cover, right? It was an atoning. It would just cover. It wouldn't fulfill it, whereas Christ came and fulfilled the whole law, a one-time sacrifice. But yes, that's, that's, so that's what I would say, is that we, we, can't, we can't claim the promises of Israel to the United States or to the church or to any other country, and God will be faithful to Israel so does he show privilege? Yes, because he's promised to them, but we are beneficiaries without a doubt, right? We receive all the spiritual blessings given to us. In fact, we'll see in Romans 12, he says, as we go through all these things, therefore by the mercies of God, you have received all these spiritual blessings. What's your response? Your response, your reasonable response is, 
presenting my body as a living and holy sacrifice, right? Because of all the things God has given me without me deserving anything, being a Gentile and being without in the privileges of God, he's given me all these things. And yet, so what do I do? I respond positively by being a living and holy sacrifice back to him. Does that answer your question, Morris? <laughs> yeah, but I just get the, I get the feeling like when he says here that, um, when he's talking, when he's saying that uh, some of the Jews rejected you know, him. So the Jews that, um, you know, the Jews that accepted Jesus, you know, there's value in being a Jew before that. Yeah. But if you were a Jew before that and you didn't accept Christ, I don't know that there's any value other than you serve the value to future people to record that history. Yeah. But if you, but if you were a Jew before and you didn't accept Christ, I don't know what. You're condemned. Yeah. Yeah. Still, you are. That that was his case. That you are without excuse. In, in in fact, more so because you had the word of God, and yet you rejected the word of God, and so you are without excuse. And like we we're saying, that they were mistaught that just being a Jew made them more valuable than somebody else, and it, it's not that way. Um, God pronounces his condemnation on the Jews, especially because they had the oracles of God, right? Um, we'll end there. There's always a lot more to go through. <laughs> any questions or comments? That was a great question, thank you. Anybody have any more comments or thoughts? Maybe. <laughs> In the first part, the Jews and the law, it just, it, it, you know, my, in the notes of my Bible, it says, uh, uh, you know, these verses are scathing criticism of hypocrisy. It is much easier to tell others how to behave than to behave properly ourselves. It is easier to say the right words than to allow them to take root in our lives. Um, and so the Jews were kind of saying, okay, I'm circumcised and I have the law, so. I'm righteous, but without Jesus and without love, yeah. you're lost. And that's kind of what Paul was saying is, yeah, that's great, but unless you have this, you're lost. And I, I kind of, uh, in my mind, I'm thinking how Christians in the church are similar today where, you know, you know, I was watching, uh, it was Bill O'Reilly and Cuomo, and they were talking about wokeness and sexual orientation and the argument that Cuomo was saying is that, you know, Christians, they don't show the love of Jesus. They're just like hateful and condemning. And, and you know, O'Reilly's argument was trying to defend Christians instead of trying to defend God. Yeah. Like you can, uh, so what it all boils down to is, um, you know, unless you have the love of God in your heart, and they say you can be circumcised, but your heart needs to be circumcised. So. Even Christians, we're not perfect, and you know when you go off the path, you know you're no longer representing Jesus and spreading the word. You're, you know, you're you're going down the wrong path. Same as the Pharisees, you know, yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, the, and that that's a big difference too. Is that who who sanctifies you? Do you sanctify yourself by? discipline by getting up and reading the scripture by going to church by doing these things but who sanctifies you right so our faith is not only in justification it's in sanctification 
but it's in him sanctifying you. And so it's not they, the, the, the Christians who do this condemning, which all of us are very easy at doing, especially if you have kids, you know, it's easy to, easy to say, do as I say, not as I do, you know. But we have to, as believers, know that he is sanctifying us, right? So what do we do? We let him sanctify us, basically, and get out of the way. So the disciplines of reading a scripture is knowing how what sanctification looks like, knowing what ultimately Christ looks like. And so our, our goal and our duty is to be of him. We were talking about children's church. Pray without ceasing. How do you stop or how do you pray without ceasing? You still got to sleep. You still got to eat. You still got to work. You still got to do all these things. But it's the idea that he is always here at hand with you. They're willing to sanctify you if you just get out of the way, basically, right? So how do you get out of the way? The disciplines, but the disciplines are not the thing that sanctify you. The disciplines are the things that allow him to sanctify you. And there's a big difference of that heart changing. And that's another thing that we, we all need to work on is allowing the sanctification process to happen. And if you can, you should be able to look, say last year, June 4th, have I grown spiritually? Have I been more sanctified in one year or six months, whatever way you do, than I was, than I am today, right? And oftentimes we look, we've been Christians for 20, 30, 40 years or whatever, but we go, man, have I really been sanctified? And if it's not, it's be probably, it's not because God isn't sanctifying, it's because you're saying, I got this, I got this, you know, that thing, so. All right, we better end there now. But that's, how, that's a great question, okay. Father God, we bow our hearts, Lord, we thank you because you do it all. You justify us, you sanctify us, and you will glorify us, Lord. And all we need to do is just have faith and trust that you are working in us. And we're thankful. We ask, Lord, that you would give us more faith. We believe. Help us in our unbelief. We worship you. We praise you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.